Hello, I am Joel McLeod. And I'm Roland Tanner. And welcome to the 905er. The provincial election begins in just a few weeks. The 905 region will be an important part of who makes up the next government of Ontario. And as we've often said on this program, the 905 region is without a doubt one of, if not the most, important region in the entire country when it comes to politics. However, too often our region gets overlooked by mainstream media. Instead, when it comes to our part of Ontario, the complexity and diversity of the 905 is boiled down to just, well, polling and punditry. We wanted to get away from that format, you know, the confrontation as entertainment, and instead focus on the issues. And that's why we reached out to the party leaders to talk with them one-on-one and to hear in detail what they would do for our region. As part of that effort, last week we sat down with Mike Schreiner of the Green Party of Ontario. And as promised today, we bring to you our episode with Stephen Del Duca of the Ontario Liberal Party. Stephen Del Duca was the former MPP for Vaughan Woodbridge, and he was elected to be leader of the Ontario Liberal Party in only 2020. Right now, the Liberals hold only seven seats in the legislature, and in order for that party to rebuild and become a force again in this province, it is vital for them to, well, regrow that base in the upcoming election. A target for that rebuilding and for that growth is, of course, the seats here in the 905 region. We sat down with Stephen to discuss the housing affordability crisis, the environment and our economy, as well as the potential for future COVID-19 outbreaks, and how the Ontario Liberals would rebuild our healthcare system to protect us down the road. Now, the point of these episodes aren't to push back or to confront the leaders, but rather to let the leaders speak for themselves. And if you don't like what they hear, well, that's on the leaders. Review with Stephen Del Duca. We'd like to uh, extend a warm welcome to Stephen Del Duca, leader of the Ontario Liberals, for uh, taking time from his uh, busy, hectic schedule uh, to come on uh, to 905 to share the Ontario Liberal Party's views on the issues Ontario faces, especially in the 905, and what their plans are to, uh, to address it. So, Stephen, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Great. Um, let's dive into it. Um, I, I asked uh, uh, Mike Schreiner this question before, and I'll ask it to you. A recurring theme on the podcast that Roland and I keep coming across is, you know, uh, development and housing affordability. Um, this is a constant concern that we've had people talk to us about, and we've had a, a number of solutions presented to us as to how to uh, rein in housing prices. And uh, I'm sure people listening want to know what would the Ontario Liberals do uh, to ensure that housing remains affordable and available to uh, to Ontarians. Well, it is uh, it is obviously one of the most pressing issues that we are we are facing. We're facing it in, of course, the GTHA. We're facing it in so many different communities across Ontario. I look. I'm a 905er. I hear about it in my neighborhood from parents who are really concerned. I hear about it from grandparents too, who are concerned about their kids and their grandkids. And, you know, where they're going to be able to live, what they're going to be able to afford, whether it's purchasing or, frankly, even renting. Like at this point, everything has been moving in the wrong direction for so many people. And our party has been hard at work over the last number of months developing a policy and, and a platform that we're going to be releasing over the next number of weeks for sure. But this is something that goes right to the heart of the affordability crisis we have. And I mean affordability in general, not just as it relates to housing. I think the one interesting thing for me, this was a discussion that started um, when I was last, uh, when I was in cabinet. And at that time, there were a lot of differing opinions about what the primary driver or culprit was behind the housing affordability issue. 
Today, I think on, on the good side, it seems to me that it's fairly well understood that we have a supply challenge or crisis. And that's, again, a supply of all forms of housing, not one particular type, but all forms of housing. So I think the good news is, is that there, there is broad recognition that we need a lot more of everything built. We need it built quickly. Uh, we need it built sustainably so that our communities aren't spiraling out of control. Um, and I, you know, our plan will our plan will speak to that. But there is a there is a, a very serious problem around how we deal with approvals processes, and at the same time safeguard those things that we hold dear, whether that's environmental environmental protections that need to be in place, those livable, walkable communities that we all want to build across the GTHA and beyond. Uh, so there's a there's a lot of work that we've put into this, and I'm really looking forward to releasing our housing plan in the run-up to uh, the election campaign itself. Uh, I mean, there's, uh, to an extent, there's a, there's, there's a very broad agreement across the various parties to some extent about what needs to happen. The, the disagreement is about how we get there, I suppose. Uh, and I guess I'd ask two questions that come up repeatedly sort of in regards to how we get a solution to this. Uh, one, the first one is, do you think there's, do you think the market alone can provide a solution to this? Is it a matter of, of, of uh, you know, uh, removing whatever stands in the way of the market so the market can simply provide the supply that we need? Or is it more a case of uh, kind of getting in the wrong kind of housing? That when housing is built, it's often not aimed at that affordable sector or, or the lower income sector. And then as a kind of follow up to that, how, uh, you know, the, the NIMBY problem, so to speak, is often mentioned. Uh, do you think that that is a problem? Uh, is that what's, you know, kind of throwing everything off the rails? Or, or is there other, are there other things at work? So uh, to your first question, uh, Roland, I would say, um, no, I, I, I think we're at a point in this crisis where it's no longer going to be good enough to say, especially since it's all forms of housing that we're talking about needing, and, and we certainly do, I don't think we're at a point anymore where we can pretend that the market on its own is going to be able to accomplish all of the objectives that we need to have. I mean, when you're talking about, you know, needing at least 1.5 million more units over the next decade, and I think that's a low number personally, uh, when we're talking about dealing with the, the affordability in the rental housing market, you know, uh, and how little purpose-built rentals actually being built comparatively over the past 15, 20 years. Uh, when you talk about, you know, people who, who need uh, deeply affordable housing units, I mean, when you look at the entire picture, to pretend that just stripping away approvals, process timelines and letting the market run run free is going to get get everything done, I think would be would be the wrong way to do this. I, that, that's my sense of how the Ford conservatives want to deal with this issue. I'm not in that space. I think we actually have to be far more purposeful, far more deliberate. And yes, for sure, working with the private sector and working with the not-for-profit sector and NGOs and municipal partners to deliver, uh, to deliver in, a, in, in an inter, to intervene in order to deliver what we actually need. So no, I don't think the market alone is going to get this done. And then with respect to NIMBYs, it's a really, it's an interesting, it's an interesting dynamic. I mean, I've seen it play out in my own home community of Vaughan, my own home community of Woodbridge, a lot of attempts to build infill development, stack towns and some low to mid-rise, uh, you know, which in, in essence, we do kind of need if we're going to hit the overall target we need to hit at the same time as doing it in a sustainable way. But it really can, 
it really can cause quite a bit of angst and about a, a bit of havoc or a lot of havoc in existing neighborhoods when people have been living in their homes 15, 20, 30 years to suddenly say, oh, that retail plaza that used to be sitting on the corner is now going to be a six-story condo. It, it can be jarring for people, you know, and, and finding a better way between how municipalities do their official planning, how we, how we set the intensification targets. I think there, there needs to be a better way to encourage people to understand that the entire process and plan will fit together in a way that it, it's not going to disrupt their lives to the extent that it will, but we need this in order to actually create those sustainable communities. And we're not there right now. There is still far too much, there's still far too much, um, you know, negativity attached to these kinds of discussions in order to get the outcomes that we're looking for. Um, I just want to keep uh, keep the conversation going and, and kind of move on to the next area. I'm, I'm going to combine two questions into one uh, here. Um, we've had on the podcast before uh, Flavio Volpe of the APMA to talk about their Project Arrow and the need to transform the auto industry here in Ontario towards EV car production. Uh, and Premier Ford has announced that he he's going to commit to making Ontario a destination for EV car manufacturers. Um, and I want to know what what's uh, what would you categorize the priority of your party towards this goal, and how do, how much of a priority is that in terms of balancing uh, the environment and our economy uh, going forward underneath a, an Ontario Liberal government. Well, it's a huge priority for me personally. So I've, I've actually had a pure battery electric vehicle for five years, uh, the Chevrolet Bolt. That's, you know, Bolt with a B as in Bob. Uh, you know, I love it. Uh, it was, uh, you know, really interesting five years ago when I first sort of jumped into this, uh, this market and tried it out at first. And I, I've, I've lived in the GTHA my whole life, and I've been driving since I was 16 years of age. It was a bit of a change, obviously those first few months to, ha to have the new vehicle, but I, I love it and I, and I, I won't go back. Um, and, uh, you know, we are blessed in the GTHA and that we do have fairly, I would say uh, it was okay five years ago. Today, we have pretty good access to electric vehicle charging infrastructure. Uh, you know, I have one in my own garage at home, but there's a lot, it's actually been quite a remarkable uptake in the last five years, whereby you know, or five years ago, I knew the one or two places in Vaughan where I could go. Now there are, across the 905, there are lots of access points, uh, which is good news for, for those of us that have vehicles and for those who might be considering it. The challenge I have with the way that the Ford Conservatives have approached this issue, and let me just acknowledge, like, the announcement recently in the Windsor-Essex area about the battery plant, I think that's good news for Ontario. And I think it's important for me to acknowledge as an opposition leader, that is good news. The challenge I have is that like with so much else, the Ford conservatives talk a good game about what they claim they want to do. But when I think back to the original decision in 2018 to, for example, eliminate the electric vehicle incentive program, and then to go to some of the GO stations and rip out electric vehicle charging infrastructure that had been installed, I think that that sends a signal to consumers. It sends a signal, frankly, to the global supply chain that you're not a leader in Doug Ford and you're not a place in Ontario under Doug Ford that really does believe in creating a domestic market for these vehicles. So it's good to get the assembly plant for sure. It's good to talk about a critical mineral strategy in the north because we do actually have, uh, whether it's cobalt or nickel or others, we, we have critical minerals in Ontario that can help with the supply chain. 
But the third piece that's been missing under Doug Ford and quite evidently won't come back under Doug Ford is making it easier and more affordable for Ontario families to transition to an electric vehicle, thereby growing the domestic market and creating a bit of a virtuous circle here instead of doing the way that Doug has, which is to say, on the one hand, I don't really believe in the technology and I don't want to support consumers. But on the other hand, I want the really nice photo op right before the election. And that's not the right way to do it. Um, I, I do. You touch upon uh, the uh, the infrastructure, the charging stations, and the affordability uh, factor for EV car manufacturers here in the province. And you know, you were you were part of the uh, a major part of the, of the wind government uh, in the last Ontario government. And they, they had the uh, the Green Energy Act, which for our listeners was uh, Cole's notes version. Basically, uh, it was a way to help the price the price uh, price on carbon would help subsidize uh infrastructure into uh charging stations and uh ev car sales my question to you Stephen, is would you bring something like that back uh because it was very controversial at the time uh which led to uh doug ford a lot of people getting uh giving doug ford their support in the last election would you bring something like that back to help uh pay for all this uh that's needed so, you know, again, we've been doing a lot of work around uh, what we're going to be saying <clears throat> on the fight against the climate crisis on issues relating to uh, how we can build an, an energy system that is resilient and can produce the, uh, the electricity generation that we need. There's a whole series of ideas that we're going to be including in our plan or we have included in our plan that we're going to be releasing. But, you know, I think, I think it's safe for me to say at this point that our plan is responsible. It's thoughtful. We take into account that we have to set real targets and then meet the targets around how we confront the climate crisis and protect our environment. But we have to do it in a way that's not tone deaf to the affordability crisis that Ontarians have right now. And I'm quite pleased to say that, you know, I think we've struck the right balance. I don't want to get myself into trouble by inadvertently releasing parts of our platform before I'm supposed to. So it, I know it's annoying or maybe frustrating for your audience to hear me say, a few times today, well, you're, you know, you're just going to have to wait and see. But I promise you're not going to have to wait to see very much longer. I'm excited about the next few weeks. Just this past weekend, I released plans around our what I call our economic dignity charter or our economic dignity plan for Ontarians. We have more that's going to be coming soon. But I, I just want to stress, I think we have to find a way to thread the needle properly between the challenges that we face, how we don't just set targets, but we meet them at the same time up against the backdrop of that affordability crisis that I was talking about just a second ago. Now, just actually on the, on the subject of that uh, economic dignity uh, plan and so on, um, now obviously before the last election there was the, the, the basic income pilot and actually that's uh, something that we've done a few episodes on, uh, uh, the kind of fallout from the cancellation of the basic income pilot following uh, uh, 2018. Are you looking at bringing back uh, another pilot or is basic income uh, back on the radar as far as, as you're concerned? Yeah, so I was happy to announce um, last, I think it was October or November, that an Ontario Liberal government would reinstate the basic income pilot. You know, I'd be looking for ways for us to do it in a shorter time period than the full three years that we originally had set the previous pilot for, uh, mostly to guard against the political nonsense that we saw with what, what, with what Doug Ford did in such a crass and cruel way to before the election, as you'll recall, say that he would keep it and let the pilot run its course 
and then to cancel it for no good reason. Like there's literally no valid reason to cancel the pilot. And let me just say, it would have been so, I think, worthwhile for both the government of Ontario and frankly, even the government of Canada to have had all of the data from the Ontario basic income pilot when we had when, when we were heading into the COVID-19 pandemic and governments everywhere in this country were looking at how to develop, design and deploy income support programs. Imagine if they'd had at their disposal all of the data, all of the research and anal analysis from Ontario's basic income pilot to help inform their decision making instead of what they had, which was nothing because Ford decided to go in a different direction. So we're going to reinstate the pilot. If there's a way to do it in a shorter time frame, I, I'd be excited about that. Uh, mostly, I want to make sure that we capture all of what we need here in Ontario to make a responsible and informed decision about the path forward. And that's why I was quite proud to make that commitment. Um, you just mentioned uh, the pandemic, of course, and I guess that's a good segue into our next uh, uh, topic. And that's, of course, uh, the pandemic recovery. Um, you know, at, at, at this point, uh, at the point of recording, mask mandates have been lifted. Vaccine mandates uh, or vaccine passports have also ended. Um, uh, I, I guess two questions. Um, how confident are you in, in those decisions right now? Um, and how are you, how are you going to uh, go about ensuring that Ontario is ready for future waves, which we understand are either right here right now, or they're definitely on the way? Well, I think that, listen, it's been, a, it's been two years of, of, of brutal disruption, lots of tragedy, you know, people losing their lives, others losing their livelihoods. It's taken a real psychological toll on the people of Ontario. I think on the one hand, everybody in this province wants to be through to the other side of this ordeal, you know, as urgently as possible. On the other hand, it can be a, a bit jarring, understandably, for people to have to behave in a certain way with the restrictions we've had, and then to see them lifted in a way that probably seemed a little bit quicker than people anticipated, especially given how tough the Omicron surge was in December and January. But what Ontario Liberals have said all the way through this process is, it's a public health, public health crisis. We have to listen to the best medical advice, uh, you know, from the chief medical officer of health to the different public health units and, of course, the science table. And so, you know, when, when the science table in particular said they were comfortable with the restrictions starting to be eased, I think we have to put our faith, and I, I've certainly put my faith in their, in their decision to say that it was, that it was okay to do so. I, I do think it was a mistake to remove the mask mandate in schools as early as the Ford conservatives decided to do, uh, mostly because the kid, obviously kids under the age of 12 are, have been starting to get the vaccines, but the numbers there are still lower than I would like them to be. Uh, so I wanted to see those numbers come up and for us to have a bit more uh, a, a bit more of an understanding in the aftermath of the March break in our schools before the mask mandate was lifted there. Uh, I think it's important to be really vigilant and to be thoughtful all the way through. So if we do see any sudden reversals, if we see the numbers start to tick up in uh, a way that is of concern, if we see the healthcare system start to be overwhelmed again, I think, yeah, we at that point, we need to move quickly and decisively. I think the good news is we now have a better understanding of how to move quickly and how to move decisively, assuming that the political leadership, you know, is prepared to do it. 
Uh, I'm not convinced uh, Doug Ford and his team would want to do that, especially right in advance of an election campaign, because I do think they're largely motivated by politics. But I think we're in an okay spot in the province right now. We just have to be careful. We have to be vigilant and, and make sure that we're prepared for all scenarios. Uh, if you were to be in a, in a public indoor space this week, would you be wearing a mask? I think it depends on the nature of the space and the people that I was around. You know, if I was, in, if I was with people who were vulnerable or immunocompromised, I think I would obviously want to wear a mask to protect them, to protect, uh, you know, well, to protect them for the most part. Uh, I have been out in public over the past couple of weeks into indoor settings, uh, and I have not been masked, and at other times I have been masked. I think the one thing that is important to me is to respect the personal freedom and the choice that people are going to make, but I'm urging everybody, you know, err on the side of caution, be prudent, be thoughtful about it, and don't do anything to unnecessarily put your yourself or those around you, those you care about, at any undue risk. So I really... Again, I do think we're, we're in an okay spot, but we have to be vigilant and careful all the way through. Between now and, uh, and Election Day in, in June, we get another wave. Um, would you kind of put that at the door of the, of the scientists, of being um, too optimistic? Or would you put the blame at, at the door of Mr. Ford um, uh, being too quick to remove mask mandates? You know, I don't know. I don't know that I would. I mean, it, it would depend on the circumstances, and it would also depend on the impact of the wave that were, you know, the theoretical or, as you mentioned a second ago, the, the you know, the wave that we may already be in or right at the front edge of, considering what we're seeing in Europe and parts of Asia. I think I think it's important for us to look at the indicators that we have, and if you think back to all the restrictions that Ontario's had in place all the way through. In particular, the the toughest restrictions that we've had to face at the at the toughest moments of the pandemic, they have yes, of course, they've been there to protect us for sure, but they've mostly been in place to to protect the healthcare system and our hospital system from being overwhelmed, right? Like that's one of the big motivations for making sure that we were we were taking the careful steps that we were taking collectively. I think we also have to gauge if numbers go up generally. You know, what's the impact of the numbers? I think we're fortunate in Ontario that by and large, most of our people have done the right thing around vaccinations. The numbers on the vaccine front are pretty good. I'm still concerned that for the youngest in the province, they're lower than I'd like them to be. Um, but I think on balance, we've done okay with vaccinations. So the question becomes, if there's another wave, what's the real impact of that wave? And that's where I'd want to hear from the medical experts and I want to hear from the science table. Within our party, you know, we're really fortunate to have uh, a couple of uh, several people running who have direct frontline experience in healthcare. We've got doctors like Nathan Stahl and Adil Shamji running uh, under our banner. We've got nurses. We have others that you know are, are hospital administrators. So, you know, we're we're able to keep our fingers kind of on the pulse of what's happening out there. But again, I just want to stress it's important for us to be vigilant and to be careful, but also to take a look, a holistic look at what any impact might be of numbers moving in the wrong direction again. Um, you, you touched upon our, our healthcare uh, system, and it brings up, a, I think, a good question that people are having. We've been hearing about nurses feeling burnout. Uh, we're having uh, doctor and nurse shortages across hospitals, uh, not just in the 9 to 5, but across the entire province, which I think people are starting to wonder, you know, if, we're getting, if we get another Omicron wave or possibly something that's worse than over Omicron, down the road, how confident are you in our 
in our healthcare system right now that it would be able to handle that uh, that surge in that wave? Well, I think we have within our hospital and healthcare system, we have the benefit of two years worth of knowledge around um, you know what it takes to be prepared. Having said that, I don't think we're in a spot right now as a province where our healthcare system is as strong or as resilient as it needs to be for the mid to long term in order to prepare, not just for, you know, a, a pandemic in this moment, a COVID-19 issue or a variant of concern, but any future crises, any future challenges that we may face. And I think that's really been laid bare by what we've seen during the pandemic. And I know that there's been some stopgap funding and there's been some other measures that different hospital administrators have brought in which have helped get us through to where we are right now. But we definitely do need to have a, a much bigger discussion with a significant provincial and federal investment to build the kind of healthcare system when, you know, where when in a province of 15 million people, when you when you need to use six, seven, eight hundred ICU beds, the system shouldn't be on the brink of collapse. And we're not there right now. You know, and I think there's there's been some really good lessons learned during COVID, but but this is gonna take some time. Uh, there's a huge human resources component to it, making sure we have the nurses and the doctors in place, making sure we have uh, world-leading technology at our disposal, and making sure that we're nimble enough to be able to address those challenges. That's going to take a bit of time, and it's going to take a big investment, and it has to be an investment that includes the federal government. Our time is drawing to a close, but there's one important subject that, that, that our listeners raise probably more than any other in some ways. We're right up there with affordable housing. And that's the uh, subject which obviously came into the news last week in particular of potential, uh, not necessarily deals, but cooperations with, with uh, other parties should the election result in, in a, uh, a minority government or a hung parliament, whatever. Um, what, what, you know, given, given the way that politics is going in, in Canada and the whole, uh, majorities seem to be rarer and rarer things. Do you think, uh, are you open to working with the NDP? And I think you've actually already said you would be. And, and leading off from that, um, you know, what, what's, what's your view on a kind of permanent solution to the, to the, to the, uh, to a kind of fractured politics we have where you can win, uh, you can win an election with, with, you know, like the low 30% of the uh, public vote? Well, look, what I've, what I've said with respect to, you know, cooperating with other political parties and other political leaders, first of all, I think it's really important for me to stress that throughout COVID, I, I have demonstrated my willingness, not only my willingness, but my desire to see more cross-party collaboration. I think at last count, I have written, I want to say about 12 open letters to each of the other three party leaders. So not select leaders, but to Ford, to Horvath, to Schreiner, asking for them to work with me, to work together, to collaborate around vaccine certificates, vaccine mandates, paid sick leave, dealing with the Omicron surge. I was really proud to uh, help organize two virtual summits that took place. One was last August around the vaccine certificate. Another was this past, uh, this, this January, this past January around the Omicron surge. We had NDP and Green Party representation at both of those summits, along with leaders from healthcare and education and, uh, you know, the municipal world, the business world and others. Uh, you know, sadly, the conservatives didn't participate in either of those summits, but they were invited. 
I have reached out individually to the other party leaders on numerous occasions beyond those letters, calls, text messages. This is just my way of saying, as a political leader, I am very open to the idea of collaborating. I think collaboration and working across party lines and acknowledging when one of your so-called opponents has a good idea, I think that, you know, that's actually, that helps strengthen all of us. It doesn't diminish any one of us. I'm not sure that each of the other party leaders is in the same headspace today as I am about the need to collaborate more, but it's this idea to drive towards more collaboration and more partnership that was the motivation behind me calling last October for a change in how we vote. And this goes to the second part of your question, Roland. You know, I believe it's important for us to be updating and modernizing how we vote, how we choose our leaders <clears throat> provincially and frankly, even municipally. That's why that I, I've called for introducing a ranked ballot or a preferential voting system here in the province of Ontario. It's something that we actually did do prior to 2018 and that we allowed municipalities, if they wanted to make the change, to make that change. And the city of London did. Uh, they started, they had their last municipal campaign that was a ranked ballot. I'm excited about the idea of a ranked ballot system, mostly because, uh, well, a couple of things. Number one, it it requires local representatives to secure 50% of the vote before they can be elected, 50% at a minimum before they can be elected. Secondly, it actually gives, it empowers voters. It gives them more choices. They can rank their choices. And thirdly, as a person who's been around politics for a long time, you know, if I know that I have to compete against, you know, three other people and I'm competing for first choice votes, but also second and third choice votes, I think that over time will help tamp down the excessive partisanship because people will want to see that we have an ability to work across party lines so as to not be punished for excessive partisanship as you're seeking second and third choices. So that was my proposal. I'm, I'm proud of that one. I'm excited of that, about that one. Um, would you be open, think, just to jump in very quickly, would you be open to discussing other uh, electoral systems, though, given that you might need the support of other parties? I mean, the ranked balance is one solution. The criticism, as you know, has been that it will tend towards the centre, which would tend to benefit your party. You know, I, I, let me I, let me just say on that, Roland. I hear that a lot from people. I don't. I've not seen even any. I mean, to me, that's a, a best guess from people who don't like the idea of the system, as opposed to a, a sort of an empirically proven, uh, let's say, theory. And this is this is my way of explaining it. You know, I think of the 2018 election campaign theoretically as a liberal. You know, I, I look back on that election campaign. I don't think if we had a ranked ballot system in 2018 that that would have saved my seat or the liberals would have won, if you know what I mean. I'll also point out that here in Ontario, we've had five elections since, uh, I'm just doing the math quickly in my head, I think it's five elections since 2003. Of those five elections, Ontario liberals have won four and we haven't had a ranked ballot system. This is my way of saying, if people think that we need to skew the voting system to win elections as liberals, they're not looking at the recent electoral record because we've won four or five with a first-past-the-post system. So, you know, do I think ranked ballots are perfect? I don't. But as a progressive, I'm concerned about those who seem to only want to look at a form of uh, proportional representation because I fear that in the last uh, two federal campaigns ago and in the last federal campaign, I think, you know, if we had straight-up proportional representation, Maxime Bernier and the party, the People's Party, would have had 15 or 16 or 17 seats in the House of Commons. And I don't know that I'd be comfortable with that outcome. 
Having said all of that, I also made a commitment to the creation of a citizens' assembly. I think the other political parties do have to be part of the conversation for sure. And I'm prepared to collaborate and work with anyone who, who shares my desire to see us strengthen our system. The worst outcome of all, I think, for many people would be kind of what happened with the federal government after 2014 of like, this will be the last election we have under this system and then nothing. So, uh, so yeah, you're open to, to, I mean, the Citizens' Assembly, would that have a real weight in terms of the system that was adopted as far as you're concerned? I mean, again, I'm open to the conversation and what those terms of reference would look like. But I but I think that, you know, for everybody who is, uh, well, put it to you this way, there's a lot of, as you both know, there's a lot of passion in this discussion, which I think is really awesome, uh, generally out there. I think there are a lot of people who are very hardened in their positions about what outcome they want to see. Uh, and I, and I, and I, you know, I think I would be, I would be keen to see how that kind of passion would help inform the ultimate decision that we would make. Um, and I would want to make sure that people weren't prepared to just take ideas off the table at the front end simply because historically they've not been supportive of them. This is my way of saying, I think a real citizens assembly would help get us to a good spot. Um, but I'm going to continue to advocate for ranked ballots because I think if we want to see more collaboration and we want to see less acrimony and less excessive partisanship, and we want to empower voters, and we want to make sure you need 50% of the vote plus one in order to win your local seat, uh, to me, that seems like the best option. I'm just going to uh, close off with one final question. This is a, a kind of a pie-in-the-sky question, but I think it's a, an important one, and I'm asking all the leaders when I get a chance. Um, if you were elected to government uh, and you, you had uh, the power to of the Ontario government behind you, all the power, what is the one thing that you want to fundamentally improve after four years of an Ontario Liberal government to make the lives of Ontarians better? Uh, for me, it would be publicly funded education. You know, I have two daughters who are in the system right now, one in grade nine, one in grade five. I think the past two years have been brutally tough for kids, for their parents, for frontline education workers. I think the past four years of Ford undermining and uh, defunding and cutting and trying to, you know, force things like mandatory online classes. I think all of that stuff, I think he's created a real mess in publicly funded education. And to me, it's one of it. First of all, it's one of the most important responsibilities a premier has. It is the great equalizer. It's supposed to, you know, bring people together in this province, unite us. And it's also really important economic uh, economics to get publicly funded education right. So uh, because I see it uh, up close, because it's not an abstract conversation for me, uh, witnessing what my daughters are going through, what their friends are going through, uh, to me that is that is the you know that is one of my top priorities. Stephen, thank you very much for coming onto the podcast today to uh, share the Ontario Liberal uh, vision for Ontario. Um, we're hoping to get uh, Andrew Horvath on for a, a third uh, third episode and uh, and round out all the. Uh, leaders uh well, who knows the maybe province? the premier will join us uh miracles may happen it, who knows the hope door is open eternal. hope springs eternal yeah, the door but the door is open the door is very have, much open yeah. yes but i will tell you as a 905er myself i'm delighted to be on this podcast with you and i'm really grateful for the opportunity fantastic That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. 
As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness then check out the natural man podcast join me host mike c as we explore all areas of human wellness physical mental and emotional learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health remember your doctor works for you learn biohacks neurohacks ways to improve sleep and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com.